this could be their first job um, that they're getting. It's it's important that we instill them with values and taking care of people and 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 be you know understanding what serving others is about. As a matter of fact, I recommend everybody to uh, you know take a job in retail or restaurants at one point in their career. It's it's humbling. Welcome to the catch up. Introducing your hosts, Eli Arith, Editor-in-Chief, and Jeffrey Kutnick, CEO, and apparently the only guy who takes this podcast seriously, of the craziest, most bestest, news-breaking, food-porn-peddling, viral website on the dot-coms, It's crazy when your future is decided by an algorithm. Dude, this pizza is fucking crazy. There's not one person in this entire world that believes you. All right. And welcome to the catch-up. All right, guys. Weekly shout-out to those of you who have been leaving reviews on the iTunes podcast store. Tagging us on Instagram stories. Appreciate you guys every time you listen to a new episode. I love that. Uh, We're at Foodbees Ketchup on Instagram, so talk to us there. But this week's shout-out goes to idkid7 from instagram who left the review on itunes he said quote unquote i've been enjoying these kids more and more jeff that's us sweet kids that's what's up i like that and uh, he says as the topics mature while maintaining a food beast-esque vibe so i like that thanks for the review and the feedback idkid7 so here's your shout out why i like that real quick eli is because he called me a kid like the day after I strained my groin in jujitsu, and I feel like the oldest man on the planet right now because I'm like nursing this weird injury. So anyway, I just wanted to give you that context. Oh my god, Jeff, we have a moment. I sprained my ankle last night, and it was god awful. I was, yeah, I was doing a layup in basketball. No one was near me. I can't even blame anyone but my rickety ankle. Anyways, so I like this because we got some exciting food beast news. In a few days, we're gonna unveil. Our own limited time pizza at one of our favorite pizza chains, The Pizza Press. And we're going to talk about it later in this episode. But this week, if you hop in the iTunes podcast store, leave the review, Stinky Pizza. Say whatever you want in the review, but you have to say Stinky Pizza in there. Put whatever review you want. Leave your Instagram handle. The first 25 people to do that, I'm going to personally reach out on Instagram and buy you a stinky pizza when it comes out. I know it sounds super appetizing, but I'm going to give you a second to pause the episode, go leave that review, and then we're going to start the show. P.S. It's garlic pizza. It's stinky though. Guys, okay, welcome back. I know I know you went and did that. I appreciate it. But Eli, fi- who yeah. we got today? Fitting. We're joined today by the Persian prince himself. <laughs> Darren Malecki is the founder and CEO of Pizza Press. Pizza Press, if you are not familiar, it's a build-your-own pizza concept that originated in a little shop in Anaheim, California, walking distance from Disneyland back in 2012. And today, Pizza Press has over 35 locations across the country, everywhere from Hawaii to California, Texas, Florida. And Dara and his team have sold millions of of pizza since the inception. And Daryl, I remember walking to that little pizza shop, super drunk, many nights after Disneyland. It was one of the few places that was open. 
I remember how cool novel it was. You kind of build your own pizza, pick your ingredients, goes on, goes down a conveyor belt, and then boom, it pops out and you have a completed pizza. And it's unlimited toppings. Oh my God. So it's awesome to have you here. Eight Thanks. years later. Yeah. <laughs> it's eight years later. My goodness. Time has flown. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's uh, pretty awesome. Um, you know, starting in Anaheim from humble, humble beginnings and mm-hmm. getting everything set up. It was, uh, it was cool. You know, I mean, it's been amazing to see how far it's grown. Well, let's, let's talk about that little shop in Anaheim. Cause when I, when I first walked in at that particular location is not there anymore. It has no. changed. It's now no. this big location, a few doors down. But what I remember, it was a small shop. There's a couple seats outside, um, literally across the street from Disneyland. Why did you start it? Like, how did you get? How did you find that space? Were you doing restaurants before? Walk us through it. No, wasn't in restaurants at all. I was in. I just got out of international business. I was uh, uh, procuring products and remarketing them in the Australian market. Uh, okay. So that's a whole nother. Yeah, we'll sounds super that. interesting. Yeah. So not restaurant tours. <laughs> not not yeah. restaurant tours. Um, but my family always had businesses in the resort area from uh, gift shops to convenience stores for like the last 45 years. Um, and, uh, you know, we had an opportunity with um, a hotel who had a restaurant that was going out. And he walked up and he's like, hey, uh, you want to try out a restaurant? We're going to be shutting this one down. Do you want to give it a shot? And it's like, okay, yeah. Wait, was it that serendipitous? It was Was that serendipitous. (laughs) And it was super cool. I mean, it was just a relationship and an ask. And it was literally on Harbor Boulevard. We were just walking by and... um, the, Wait, this guy was random. It, it was he. We knew each other. We've known each other. Paul Sanford uh, owns Wincom, um, or his own Wincom. He's the CEO and asset manager, and we've been friends for years. And he was just walking by and said, "You know, you seem like a pretty bright person. Have you ever thought of restaurants?" And I was like, "No, but sure, let's do it." Yeah. So it was it was really like that, and we had two weeks to put this thing together. Wait, two shut, weeks shut to put up. the whole entire concept together. I had no intentions of getting in a restaurant. But I've always been pretty quick on my feet when it comes to uh, putting together an experience. You know, I mean, moving, you know, remarketing items overseas. Um, you know, you've got to change it up a bit. You've got to, you've got to get a, a whole entire pitch and and get it out to market. So, um, and luckily, I had a whole entire marketing team behind me um, that that was already working on your other business. That was working on the other business, okay. and you know, they were they were a, a, a good friend of mine. John Welch is with Red Mallard. Shout out. Um, but, uh, he, he brought the team together and we just got in a room and started really talking about what the experience would be and how we were going to do it. And we were bouncing between tacos and pizza. It was like, it was going to be a, a taco concept or it was going to be a pizza concept. What was the place that you took over? Like what kind of food was it? Was it already built out for whatever that food was? It was a sandwich shop. Okay. <laughs> why do you say that? Like, why do you say like a monster? Is that is that, is that, is that shame? I, I didn't, I didn't no, understand. No, no. It, it, it was literally a Quiznos before, dude. So I mean, yeah, it's a little bit of shame, right? I mean, but the, I do miss the, nothing to I do with your the, brand. I do miss the hamsters, though. You remember the Quiznos advertisement oh where they God. used to have hamsters, and then Kia stole it, right? What, like it's like they it, moved from sandwiches to driving cars. Move it on up. Well, it felt better. <laughs> Don't put hamsters next to food ever. Like, right. Like, stupid. It works better in a car. I don't want to see a hamster near my food. Right. 
Rest right. in peace, Quiznos. Is there a store around? Okay, there's so still stores the, around. It's, okay. They're like Blockbuster, though. It's like it's a journey now to find them. <laughs> you you yeah. trash talk on the Ketchup Podcast. I do no, enjoy it. No, Quiznos is great. Like, let, <laughs> don't get me wrong. There's actually one right down the street from us uh, in in. Uh, in orange where our office is at they're 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 there they do a good job so quiznos has an iconic oven your oven at pizza press i don't know if it's the same or in the same category but is there a tie there at all in relation to that those ovens not at all we looked at it and we're like man can we make it work out of this you know because everything was still there when we walked into the first unit and i was just trying to bootstrap i mean you know exiting a business trying to figure out what direction you're going to go um you know i was looking to just kind of bootstrap and put this thing together i mean i i pretty much designed the whole entire store and just subcontracted out all the work to get the first one started it wasn't like had a designer or anything that came in so um yeah, I looked at the oven. I'm like, this thing's not going to work. This thing's not set for volume. And I think that's a, a, a real good thing for the entrepreneurs out there or the restaurateurs out there. You've got to be ready for volume. You know, if you don't think you're going to get somewhere and you're going to limit yourself, the last thing you want is your equipment limiting you. Um, we reached out to a couple of other manufacturers, only a couple of them out there. Um, and we worked with Middleby Marshall. They're a great company. So shout out to them. Um, I think they're the largest and oldest oven manufacturer in the United States. Um, flew out to, I think it's Elgin, Illinois <laughs> in January when there was a polar vortex coming through. <laughs> so California boy out in Elgin, Illinois, um, in negative 35 degree weather, <laughs> looking um, at ovens. I, I looking at ovens, I've got like a face mask on and, uh, you know, just a side story on this, you, you're driving down the highway and it's just cold, but you see these tow trucks with that, that are like police cars. I'm like, why, why do you need to have a, like, they must be towing cars. Like it must be illegal to park a car when it's that cold your cell phone because I walked outside and it dies in like three minutes oh, in the cold, like, because the battery like literally can't handle it in that cold weather. So I was like, maybe it's like a full on emergency. If your car breaks down on the side of the road, oh, you can't reach anyone because you have like three minutes to figure it out. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Like I, I it, and maybe that's not true, but it made no, sense I have to heard me. That. I also heard your fingers don't work as well in cold, like the t on a touch screen. That's right. Like your fingers, like I don't know, the receptors or whatever freeze. It's off. just cold. Yeah. He, he's, he's, I think it's heat on the touch pads. I don't. I don't know. That's we'll have to. <laughs> We'll have to call back well, on so, that one. So you knew this was pizza at this point. Like you didn't travel all the way there. Yeah. Like. In the two two weeks, we pitched it and we just put together the whole entire thing. So so, so, so the conversation that happened on Harbor Boulevard kind of randomly is from that moment, I'm going to take this super seriously and I'm going to hit go on this. Is that kind of what happened? Yeah. I, I'm a person who always is looking for an opportunity. And when an opportunity comes, uh, you just got to take it. And so why not see it through? I mean, it was, it was an opportunity that obviously had some merit and I said, cool, let's pursue it. And so we sat down we started talking about everything we needed. We were looking at the Quiznos mm -hmm. setup, and you know, the oven wasn't work. So we went shopped out the ovens and then we were like, well, how are we going to like, you know, get the dough? Are we going to be tossing it? Are we? And I was looking up equipment 
And uh, that's where the dough press came in. And I was like, dough press? That thing's a pizza press. I'm like, dude, we're going to call this thing the pizza press. And that's <laughs> where everything came from. We, we just started from there and it, then came the newspapers the editors being the employees publishers being the, the 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 guests that come through the door and it was just themed out from there pizza names from regional newspapers and regional flavors i mean it, that's where it all came out so that I is the really theme cool. I, and I, I love to talk about what differentiate differentiates you guys from everyone in this category right now because you that, that time, 2011, 2012, is when build your own pizza just became this phenomenon. Like 2012 into 2013 is like, holy cow. Like this was eye-opening. Like why hadn't, it, was that like, do you think it was tied to almost like the dip in places like Subway and Quiznos feeling some type of hurt and smart people like you noticing this setup and like, oh, I wonder if this... The way people used to build sandwiches might be a cool way to build pizzas. Yeah, I mean, I think it was Chipotle, Subway, everything was kind of like made to order. And and I really actually believe it was all about dietary needs. I mean, everything. Mm. That's when gluten-free was picking up. That's when, uh, you know, I'm all vegan. I'm vegetarian. It's all these different things. And I think it was a lot easier rather than having a menu of every, you know, logo that you can think of, whether it's green for gluten-free or mm. vegan or vegetarian. Just having all the ingredients out there made sense and giving people the control that that they can go and build their own and it works. It, it was just a much better play. So I don't know if it was like an industry or a theory of a hundred monkeys or what, you know, where, you know, it just all kind of comes together. Cause like, what's your guys's like pizza eating experience right now? Or even back then in 2011, 2012, like I, I miss the days growing up where like my parents would take me to a pizza hut and there was an actual dining room. Like you would go and you can either order the pizza to your table or they had a cute little buffet in the middle. But then there were years between my childhood and my early teens into when I became 2021. 20, that whole time, I didn't eat a ton of pizza out. Like I didn't go to restaurants and eat it. I feel like pizza may have like fallen off in that time and resurged through this new idea of like getting... I enjoy eating pizza at Pizza Press. I love going there. I get a, a good beer. I didn't have to like go work out first. Like that was a big thing in high school. Is like you go to like a lamppost pizza or somewhere after with all the people on your team. Like we're going for pizza after. You're sweaty. It's cool to be sweaty there. But at Pizza Press, you go in, guys. It's like black and white. It's kind of boutique-y, but kind of uh, that old Americana newspaper era in the 20s and the 30s. And it, it's cool to sit there for a little bit. There's no rush. Like, yeah, you got your pizza quick, but you could sit there and chill for a while, which is a different vibe than I get. You don't go sit at a Domino's. You don't get at a Pizza Hut. The value for them, the prop that they give us now is different. Domino's get to your door real quick. And there's also, there is no room to sit at a majority of those locations. They're, right. built, for, they're built to be machines for delivery or pickup, and that's it. So there, there's no, there's no reason to even if you, even if you wanted to stay there, you couldn't. There isn't a chair for you to sit at, mm. unless you go outside on the curb, which is a very different experience than, than obviously eating inside a restaurant that's well curated and looks good. But, but I think that's where it's all changed, right? I mean, eighties, nineties, we were out, 
you know, like I was out in the street playing, riding bikes, you know, doing what boys do. And then in the 2000s, like everything's changed. Everybody's in their home all the time. Like I'm not outside of my backyard and playing around. It's I think with the family is a different dynamic now. It's like Friday. It's not let's call in pizza. It's like let's go out and get pizza. So Pizza Friday has dynamically changed to be where can we go, get a great pie, get a great beer and hang out for a while. And I think everybody kind of feels that way. Um, and, I, and, and I think if you look at the industry, you know, the biggest revolution to pizza was delivery in the 80s. It was like, wait, hold on. We don't have to go to the, the Red Top Pizza Hut and go there and waste a bunch of quarters in the video games playing the, the Simpson game that I played at Shakey's when I was oh younger. God. Remember the Simpsons, yeah, Simpsons game was the best. Yo, B- Bart on the skateboard. Yep. Yep. Or Marge in the, the vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, that's that that's what that experience was. Right. And 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 then like the delivery came out and like shattered the straw hats, the, uh, you know, lampposts and all those dine in where, you know, I, you got your soccer trophy on, yeah. uh, you know, from Jusa. <laughs> um, and, and that's that's super cool. And, and and so the delivery revolution just hit. And I think people were looking for a different experience as some of those other brands that were dying in aged out. And, uh, you know, I think that's what gave the Bill Drone the the big push. It was like a resurgence of something timeless and classic. Why are all the pizzas thin at Pizza Press, Blaze, all those? Like, is there is it just because the oven can cook it really fast? Because I have some thoughts, but I'm curious why they're all so thin. I think that was just really where the opportunity was at. If you really look at the industry, like call Domino's or pizza, order one of their thin crusts. It's really not that great, you know, in, in, in the whole entire aspect. I think they probably got better. I mean, not throwing shade or anything, but they really do really well on pans and stuff like that. And, and uh, I think it's, I think that's cool, but I think it's about a market that I think a lot of people were after. Um, they wanted that experience. And I think more people are conscientious on how many carbs they're pushing in. So it's just a market for that. Was it immediately successful, the pizza press when you opened up or was it like, here's, cause again, dude, the place that I'm trying to explain, I'm trying to reimagine the it, moment when, cause my friend would tell me, he was like, dude, you got to go to this place. It's across from Disneyland and you make your own pizzas. Like, and you unlimited toppings, bro. I don't know. It was like eight or nine bucks. Unlimited toppings. You literally push the limits. That was, the, <laughs> and you go there, and it was hard to find. Like you, you walk across from Disneyland, but it was tucked on the basement or the fr- first level of a hotel. Parking was kind of challenging. There weren't a lot of spots. I can't. Was it? Was it just like immediately? There's a rush of people at the store, or was it? I don't know. No, no, it wasn't. <laughs> I wish I could say it differently. It wasn't. I mean, I thought, hey, we're opening right across the street from Disneyland. Dude, this thing is going to be a rocket ship. Um, you know, I didn't know much about the food industry, you know, <laughs> food costs, labor costs. I think I lost like 35 grand my first month just not knowing how to run the numbers, but just serving guests and providing great customer service. It was nuts. I mean, what did you lose that money on? I'm curious for people. I don't know. I don't know anything about restaurants there. So, oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's like, come on. I know a little bit. Food beats. Come on. But yeah, 35 Um, grand in the first month. Like, what? How can you fix that? 
Oh, I mean, you know, you're running staff too heavy. You're, you're you're ordering too much food. You're, you know, I mean, you've got it. You're a business, right? I mean, I think that's what's great about the catch up. We're getting on the business side mm-hmm. of it, but you know, I mean, restaurants struggle with that every day, right? Labor costs, wages go up. How do you pass that on? How do you deliver that value? But if you're inexperienced, um, you, you know, you've got your labor that is. Uh, you know, obviously your staff and you want to make sure that it's well staffed and you're giving the best customer service, but you also have to gauge it for how many people you have coming through the door. And then of course, uh, uh, unlike retail, you know, the inventory that you bring in is expiring. Uh, Like you have seven days to sell that before it's garbage, right? Because why would you want to sell a bad product? Um, and sometimes less on, on certain items. So it's not like, oh, I bought a bunch of t-shirts. I'm just going to store them over here and everything's going to be great. It's like, no, you've got to push volume. And so it's really easy, um, for businesses that are starting up to, you know, how do you gauge what your, your interest is going to be? And so do you prepare for no business or do you prepare for a lot of business? And so it was just a learning curve. And I think everybody who opens a business has a certain learning curve. I mean, every store we open in a new market, there's a learning curve. Um, and you just have to know what that market's going to yield. And so you try to try to make the best assumptions, but sometimes you're wrong. So that first month you lose something like 35 grand. Was that because you were prepped to serve the hundreds of thousands of people that are obviously going to walk <laughs> over from Disneyland and you had like 30 staff yet, what, not that many people walked in. Now you're paying for 30 people night in, night out. You're like, oh, well, tomorrow will change. Yeah. And I mean, you're just looking for, okay, look, you've got a lot of training expenses. You've got a lot of startup expenses. So you're just trying to kind of figure it all out and, and, and really feel what the heartbeat of your business is, right? I mean, that's, that's really your first 90 days of business is just trying to figure out, okay, who's our core client, who's coming in and where are the opportunities? And that's something that I think is, is real in every business. You need that, that learning curve, but at the same time, you're trying to just gauge it and be like, okay, um, made a mistake. You got to be able to have some wherewithal. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was it was fine. But after a couple months, we started getting some major traction. It was it was kind of crazy. So um, a couple months in, you guys hit a groove. You feel? Yeah, I think people started finding us. We started getting out into the community. We you know we we maintained a great product that we uh, we, we we can stand behind and believed in. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun, man. I mean, you know, the first couple of months were, were a little bit of an adrenaline rush, uh, but for someone like me, that's, that's fun. I'm uh, trying to think about me being a person like losing $35,000 in month one and, and where I would be in kind of a mental space when, when you exited your international business, did you know that you potentially had three to six months of runway for months like that before you had to churn profitability or as much as it took off in month two or three did it need to take off in month two or three because with limited runway i'm curious about where you were at as the investor and entrepreneur side of of that business uh, you know you don't have a lot of runway it's uh it, it, it no matter what i mean losing that kind of money is not fun i don't care how much money you got um yeah i mean we we, we had a limited runway we probably had until february um, we opened in July, so we had about a six-month runway to really make it happen. But realistically, we were able to control our costs. Um, so that runway extended because we were able to understand where the heartbeat, where the grooves were at, where your peaks were, and manage accordingly. So, you know, after month one, it was, okay, 
now we can normalize it. Now we can figure out where we move forward. And we were able to set scheduling, ordering, everything for the growth. So it wasn't like month two, we lost money. I mean, sales weren't where we wanted them to be, but we were able to control our costs. So, mm. you know, again, uh, some of those expenses of those losses are um, those just those things that you incur while opening a business. And so, you know, amateur uh, uh, restaurant tour at that time, um, you know, made you feel like you lost it, but realistically you were just investing. In those two weeks where you decided, I'm going to walk down Harbor Boulevard, and then at the end of those two weeks, you're opening up a pizza chain or the start of a pizza chain. What... Did you know that you were, what was the goal? Was the goal like, all right, cool. Like in those business meetings, I'm going to eventually start franchising or I just want to open up a hundred of my stores or was it just like, let's get this thing open. That's all I know. I was just looking for an opportunity um, and give myself uh, an income base um, and, you know, where it went from there. I was, I was only looking at what was in front of me at that time. And I think that's, that's sometimes the best way to approach it. I think I've heard a lot of stories about it wasn't about making it a big, it was just about making it great. Mm. And that's really where we, um, you know, started off at. It was just about making something great in the community. Um, of course, being in resort area, I mean, I don't know if you guys have traveled much, but, you know, when I was doing the international thing, um, you know, I was in a lot of different countries, you know, and you would always go like, hey, where can I get good food? And when you're, whether it's Sydney or London or whatever else, when you're in those tourist areas, it's hard sometimes. It's the worst food. <laughs> it really is. It's like, it's the mediocre food, but you're like excited because like, oh my God, I'm in Naples right now. I just got off the plane and you're in like that, that core area of, uh, you know, the tourist area of Naples. Uh, and you go and you're like, oh, I'm going to get a pizza right now. <laughs> and, you know, you're, you're, you're paying double the amount of money. The service is kind of, eh, and the product is, is good. But I think you're excited just because you're in Italy, Naples, eating a Nepal, you know, a pizza right there. I mean, yeah. it's, you're feeling it, but if you really want the good, it's always two towns over, right? It's always like in a little bit in the neighborhoods where you're going to find that like authentic, delicious pizza, you know, out of Naples. So and what are the, what are the few, what are the little things that you guys did early to make you guys stand out and that really brought in that dope experience with pizza press. Cause of all the chains in the space, there are some that are much larger, but what I've noticed trying to be super objective here is just that the brand is so much cooler and stronger and different. It feels almost a little like Dis a Disney person had their, their magic stroke on it of like, Cool, it's gonna be themed 1920s. Like you left Disneyland, you're gonna come and you're still getting an extended cool experience, but the pizza's good. And talk to me about the beer and everything. Like what makes the place special? And then we can talk about how it kind of grew. Yeah, I think it was just putting a heart behind the business. You know, I think, you know, you walk some of the other concepts or or, or whatever it is, and it, it just has a feel of like, oh my gosh, this was the exact same furniture that's at Chipotle right now. Like, you know, I, I think I wanted to take it away and not be so pretentious and really have some that had a heart and really it had consistency in the experience. And so that was really what we started off. But realistically, 
the the key thing was was the beer. I mean, craft beer was, mm. you know, gaining a lot of steam. Um, and we just opened up strictly craft. It was only craft. That was all we offered. Um, you know, local. I think bootleggers was just getting up at that time, and so they were they were really good. Um, I do remember the recommendations to go to Pizza Press early on were from crazy craft brew heads. Like they were just like, go there, get this beer. And the, pe- the they would talk about the pizza, but it was like, there's a pizza place that has just a whole rack. All the taps are craft beer. And was that part of an early audience? Is that who was coming or? That was just a decision we made. It was just, look, you know, we're going to be a local company that's going to support other local brands. And that's what we did. And I think that was a really good decision at that time because I think that's what people were looking for. I still think people look for great local brands. And um, that was something that we really pushed on. That beer was great. I mean, uh, it still is great. Uh, you know, we I think we had eight taps at our original location. Um, now at pretty much every location you go to, you have over 18 drafts uh, and taps available. Was the, the newspaper thematic, the 1920s publishing thematic, was that really just based off of seeing a, a dough press and pizza press and then ran with it? Because the reason why I ask is Eli and I have had this conversation where we've been obviously to a number of quick service pizza places and you're going to see a person in a t-shirt with tons of toppings that you can order pizza, you can order your own, you'll get it within eight minutes depending on how big the line is. And that's that. It serves. It kind of serves a purpose. With Pizza Press, there's an obvious thematic that when you walk into, there's a culture that you can choose to be a part of, right? And it goes to how you speak about your staff, to how you speak about the pizzas, to how you speak about the customers. You've already mentioned publishers and editors already. Did that come over time or was that inherent like pretty much as soon as you knew your Pizza Press, everything kind of came together for you? Yeah, I mean, we we intended it to be a customer service heavy, experience based, um, you know, fan based business. I mean, it, we've got a following. Um, you know, it's it's a movement, um, and that's what it's about. I think people are all looking for something to be a part of, and you know, we don't want it to just be another, uh, you know restaurant that has a cool logo and a color scheme. I mean, you know, think about it. I mean, I go to so many places like, oh, wow, red, awesome, yeah. good job. <laughs> you know, like, and then their logo. I mean, think about it. I mean, we, and it's just like, okay, that's great. Like, but what about the heart? You know, where's the heart of that business at? And it really is with the staff and the leadership. It's it, it, it's really cool when you get people who are inspired. And, and as a restaurant tour, you know, we have a responsibility to train staff to be good. This is this could be their first job um, that they're getting. It's it's important that we instill them with values and taking care of people and 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 be you know understanding what serving others is about. As a matter of fact, I recommend everybody to uh, you know take a job in retailer restaurants at one point in their career. It's it's humbling. Because you're serving people and, and food, probably one of the hardest, you know, so many people come in hungry, hangry, um, you know, th- and those things all exist. And like, you're trying to take care of that fellow person. And there's, you know, it's not like they're your significant other or your parents, like, you know, those are people that you serve daily. Um, what was your first service job? Did you have one? 
I worked at Starbucks. Okay. Um, I've had a lot of jobs, man. I've had a lot before I got into business, you know, just hopped around with a lot of cool jobs. Respect, uh, respect. Yeah. So what, what point do you open your second location and where was that? So that's kind of a cool story. After one year, um, we like hit some really good success after like month three and it was just becoming a staple. And, you know, everybody was like, oh my God, this is great. You know, and being in a tourist area, people were like, oh man, we want it out in Utah, mm-hmm. you know, Northern California, Washington, um, some of the places we are now, um, which is pretty cool. Um, and a lot of people like, we found you in Anaheim and we love it. Um, but we were looking at, hey, where could we really find somewhere really cool that really strikes our time period and so orange plaza um or the orange circle for people who are outsiders um (laughs) right they're pretty crazy over there about their plaza it's not a circle it's a plaza so um but yeah i was eyeing that and i really wanted it and there was this uh uh running a shoe store called running lab that was going out and I was like, oh man, I want this bad. Like, how do I get into this store? And, you know, uh, tried to negotiate it and lost it to another shoe store that, that picked it up. And so I was crushed at that moment. I was like, man, this is, we're a year in, really want this because I think it's just, you know, this is the area. And, and, and if you don't really remember like pre 2014, the Orange Plaza only had like three things really happening: Watsons, Havens, and then the the bar scene down let me, there. Let me let me let me cut you off real quick and set the scene for people who aren't from California, let alone Orange County. Or the Orange Circle within Orange County is one of the oldest, most historical parts of Orange County, and they're very pretentious about this Plaza Circle where. People get grandfathered into rents. They get uh, people have owned these buildings for years and years and years, decades, centuries, some. And for the longest time, they didn't let any big business come in. So there were no like they were very well manicured in who they let in and and who they didn't let in. So it was all family owned places. And it feels like you're walking into the 20s and 30s when you walk into this town, which is very different from the rest of Orange County and where a lot of business is going. So I just wanted to set the scene of why the Orange Circle seems like a pretty good place for a second location of a 1920s themed pizza place. But other than those three businesses, it was like all antique shops in the place right. went silent after five o'clock other than the bars and 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 the gastropub, which was is phenomenal. Um, I, I still enjoy going there. Um, but yeah, we were looking at it. I'm like, man, you know what? I'm going to give it a year. If this business makes it a year and beyond, I just have to set my heart somewhere else and get building elsewhere because I've got to grow this brand. I've got to figure this out. And we really want to get another location outside of a resort area, right? Because I think, you know, sometimes that can be uh, a little bit different on how much, you know, you can do in business. It's like, if I can crush it in a neighborhood market, you know, this thing's set the scale. Um, Yeah, that's that's not to cut you off, but that's really interesting because I would think like I just popped off in a resort district. So I'm going to go to Universal City Mm. and pop off there. Like, that, that's a really interesting mindset that it almost felt like a challenge to yourself, like succeed outside of what you've seen. And now we really have something. Yeah. I think that's, 
you know, I mean, I want to turn into like Bubba Gumps or something, you know, like where, mm. you know, and, 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 and no shade on them. I mean, that's just, you go any resort area. It's like, you got a Bubba Gumps there. Uh, you know, if you're in for some, you know, good fried fish and, and uh, shrimp, it's, it's all good. Um, but we didn't want to be known for that. And that wasn't how our brand was going to be moving forward. It was about maintaining that heart, maintaining what we started on and by getting into communities where we could really attach to them. And, and the big thing that I saw at Orange was we had Chapman University there, which was like, oh my goodness, these kids, like they- It's the only college town in Orange County. Like there are other colleges and universities, but it's not a town built around the university. Orange very much is dictated by this. And that's that's not something that's very prevalent in California. Like, so having a college town culture, a walking culture, people walking around doing stuff, like that's not a thing in Orange County. And so that's, it seems like pretty fitting. So when it, when Pizza Press eventually opened up there, I was like, oh, shit's cracking. This yeah, like- it was nuts. And we were delayed. I mean, we were dealing with a hundred and 12 year old building um you know there was a historic society so uh you know as you know the orange plaza area or maybe you don't know uh the orange plaza is a a, a historically registered uh environment so everything has to go through like it's it's process of of getting it in and and any business that comes in it kind of has to pay their dues in regards to researching understanding the history which was super cool right i mean you're going through documentations finding out that you know this store was a blacksmith's back in like 1897 and you know when we got into it it was awesome because we had to rip up all the concrete and like underneath it was just like all these horseshoes like all these horseshoes fun fact if you go into the orange store and you walk through the door look up to the top of the rafters and you'll see a horseshoe hung up there and that was actually found on site so a little fun story (laughs) Well, fun story, uh, but yeah, it was cool. And, and and so a year later, it literally went out and we struck hard and we started it going. And so by 2014, we, we, we had a business there and it, it rocked and rolled. So was it after the success of now multiple locations where you started to not only see what was directly in front of you, but that there potentially was a bigger opportunity was, was was that a trigger point where you thought I have a brand that has a heartbeat and I can grow it with franchising? Yeah. Franchising was really about growth. And I think in the entrepreneurial spirit, and I think I really embrace entrepreneurial, uh, you know, spirits here. It it was something about giving to others what we've created and see them blossom. I mean, something that's really cool in the franchising realm is seeing someone find success through your processes and that's really cool to see. So it wasn't intended. I didn't start the business to franchise. It just became a way to share beyond a pizza, you know? And I think that was really where we, where we wanted it to go. And that's, it's, you know, it's awesome. Can you explain to some of my friends who are listening? I totally know what you're talking about, but what's the difference between owning a restaurant and franchising out like explain that that process and if there are other bigger examples of like how you think oh they franchise really well they company own really well like in and out every store is owned by in and out and by the founders of in and out every last one can you explain that a little bit and how that changed how you grew 
Yeah, I, it is. It's it's really cool. I mean, I think when you look at, you know, the different strategies that are out there for growth, you know, corporate growth, um, you know, geez, uh, on the business side, you know, you got to look at how you're going to grow your company. And there's multiple directions and there's no really wrong direction to go. I think it's just what you can tolerate. Um I just really enjoyed the fact that I could share the business concept with other people and have them enjoy the same business that I'm in and that I found some success with. And so that was really cool. Um, Overall, you know, each one has its own challenges, right? Uh, You know, it wasn't like I came from a heavy uh, financial background um, and, and that was all there. And I didn't necessarily want to call up a VC or bring a big partnership together to, you know, fund and finance or go through the rounds of a startup. You know, those are all things that you lose control along the way as well. Mm-hmm. And I just felt franchising was the most entrepreneurial way to approach it. Um, it was something that I could share with others, give them opportunities and, you know, give them the opportunity to succeed. So if you own a restaurant and you want to franchise it out, how do you do it? So you like create this package, like, all right, cool. You get to use my name and you get to open. And here's, here's a little booklet I made on how to operate this restaurant. You have to pay me for the booklet. You have to pay me. Uh, a tax on everything you sell, 7%, 10%. I don't know. Pretend I have no idea what franchising means because I think people out there literally don't. They hear the term or they want to get in. They want to own a bunch of subways and they just don't know what really goes into it. How much time do we have? (laughs) 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 Because, I mean, it's it's complex, right? Because you really have to work through it. I mean, obviously, we're in a regulated industry. Um, It's about, you know, getting it started is not as easy as it seems. But, I mean, if you really break it down we all belong to a franchise as it stands. I mean, if you live in the state of California and you pay taxes, you're just franchisee. Like to live in this, in this beautiful state, you're you you as an individual, whether you own a home or you run a business or you're, you're just, you know, cruising through you're, you're part of it. I mean, you're paying taxes, which is similar to a franchise fee. If you really think about it. Um, but you know, (laughs) going back from theory here, um, you know, franchising is really just a growth model. Um, you, to get it started, you, you, you need to, you know, call up some attorneys. Um, you need to really get your operations locked down and processes. Um, I had some good mentors along the way, um, to kind of, you know, guide me through, uh, Martin Diedrich actually, uh, Diedrich's coffee. coffee. Wow. Yeah. He, uh, but he's been with Gloria Jean. Uh, if I'm saying that right, I think it's Gloria Jean. Um, and, uh, obviously Diedrich's coffee and then Keens, which is, really good coffee. I don't know if you guys have ever been to mm-hmm. Keens. Yeah. Um, and he's also a roaster. Um, and you, you can get beans from him and he's uh, just a wealth of knowledge. And I really sat down with him and asked him, Hey, you know, what is it like franchising and corporate? And he had, he had great input on both sides. And so he gave me some really good advice and understood, you know, he's like, either way, 
you know, there's there's going to be a lot of control if you build it corporately. You're not going to have as much control, but in the franchise side, but it's really fun and you get to deal with a lot of great people. And, and that's true. We get to deal with a lot of great people out there. And, and what's awesome is, is, you know, we really looked at it as rather than being franchise, we really look at it as being locally owned. You know, everybody who owns one of our locations is a local owner. So I think it, it has a better impact in the community when you know that you're buying from someone who owns that business and they live right down the street from you. And they might know the, the area that you're getting into better than you do. You were born and raised like around here in Orange County. Yeah, Yorba Belinda. Yeah. So yeah, yeah like how Shout you don't know what's going on in Florida. Like you don't know the, the real estate there. You don't do people <laughs> like pizza there, but someone else <laughs> right. might. Right. Florida's weird. Who knows? It takes coming. <laughs> it is, it, it is an interesting state for sure. Uh, I enjoy going out there though. It's fun. Um, yeah, I mean, franchising was just a, a another opportunity, and it's a it's a great growth opportunity. Like I was saying before, um, you, you know, you've got to register an FDD, which is franchise disclosure document. You know, you, it's not a little book um, that you get to put together. Yeah. It's like a four hundred and seventy five page operations manual um, that has multiple sections. It's it's not the cheapest thing to do. Um, you know, after you get through legal and consulting and all that. And so it's, it's, it, it's definitely something to do, but you need to be prepared. You need to be prepared. You need to have, uh, everything documented well. And I think the reason why Eli kind of asked for the bare bones of it is because seemingly every single restaurant entrepreneur we run to mentions that as a goal when they're talking to us. It's like, oh, yeah, we just opened in this food hall. We want to build a concept. Oh, like, what's your plans? Build out eight locations. We're going to franchise it out. Like, it's, it's, it's said very commonly to the point where I think... I'm like, dude, it's not that easy. It, we know it's not that simple, but it's, it's on not. every. It's literally on every everyone's tongue. And I think that's why we were, que we're questioning it because... When you look at what's happening in the fine dining category and name brand chefs don't see scalability or growth with those concepts in multiple markets. So they build crack shacks and they build shake shacks and, you know, and they see something that actually can have growth. Everyone starts using this word franchise, even when there's companies that are completely co corporate owned that they peop, people are still calling them franchises because that word is just like the goal, the exit. And so I think that's why we wanted to talk about it a bit. Someone who's actually doing it <laughs> has 30 plus franchise locations in different parts of the country. And I'm curious about some of the difficulties that you ran into building those franchises. Oh man, I, yeah, I mean, franchising is cool. It's not as easy. And I think a lot of people are like, I need to build eight. Jeez, I mean, just getting eight locations open, oh number one, is like a test of time. Um, you know, that's something that I think everybody's on their own journey and it sounds really attractive. Um, but once you start sharing your concept with others, it's really. Uh, it really kind of turns political to a certain level. You know, you are re not responsible, but you've really got to be thoughtful um, to the others that have hopped on your ship or got on your bus. I mean, whatever analogy you want to run, you, you're responsible for other passengers' well-beings. They believe in you and your concept. That's a heavy burden. That's a heavy burden. It, it, it You know, it's a little bit easier when you have 
some staff members that work for you and they're hourly or, you know, you realize like, hey, you know, they have a job with us. But you have people who literally invest half a million, $750,000 to get their business started. And, you know, they, you know, at the end of the day, it's their business. They need to operate it um, and, and build the business. But sometimes it's a challenge, right? Mental blocks get in the way. Um, you know, just personal challenges, life happens, um, you know, and you're trying to coach these people to be the best they can be. Um, and business is no joke. It's, it can be unforgiving. I want to get into the technicalities of that in a little bit, but the idea of growth, like just throwing the word around growth is so vague because what does it mean when someone is like, I want to start a restaurant, I want eight locations. Like, why do you want the eight? Because... It could mean something entirely different. If you want eight company-owned locations, I mean eight locations that you own, you're the only investor, or you own everything outright, or do I want, and do you want them all to make a certain amount of money, or do you want to own two concepts, two restaurants, and then have a hundred franchise-owned locations because you just want growth? What does growth mean? Like, it's got to mean something entirely different to everyone. So growth could mean I want eight locations because I want to sell this concept to somebody. I want someone to just buy me out. I want Pizza Hut to be afraid of my pizza concept. I want them to buy it. <laughs> like, does that cross your mind? Because growth means something different to everyone. And it's dangerous to just throw the word around because it gives people the wrong impression. So like if you're going to steamroll towards opening up 100 locations to say you have 100 locations, franchising might be your route to do it because you want to achieve something very specifically catered to you as a person at home listening. Like that's why you want 100 locations. Afters Ice Cream, who's on here, they're all company owned. Yep. They might have completely different reasons for doing so. For them, the business might not be that cash intensive. It might be like pretty easy to like, – I, I hate to word, throw the word easy around also. But, but lower yeah. startup costs, like sure. smaller locations. Yeah, like you're, you're not yeah. cooking anything there. You're storing ice cream in freezers and you get to serve it to people. Like for you, like, you know, there's a kitchen. You got cold storage. You got – you have these ovens. It takes up a certain amount of footprint. Like it's important to define growth to different people because you could get – fucked if you don't understand what it is and you're going after it for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that is absolutely one of those things that growth means something different to everybody. Um, and I think it's really where where the individual wants to be. Um, that's that's on them. Um, you know, it's it's finding out how much fight they've got in them. I mean, it's it's a road. It's a road. I mean, I know plenty of people get to two to three locations and it's like, all right, cool. That's good. That's good. I mean, if you have two or three really dope locations that all are profitable, always have people in the door, you could be a millionaire off that stuff. You know what I mean? And the difference between having those three locations to working your ass off and trying to open three more that you company own or franchise, like who knows how much more money that is in your pocket if that is worth it or if you should be content with the three. That's why you have to go out and define your definition of growth. Well, I think that's all about planning up front. You know, where where do you want to go? I mean, for us, I mean, you know, we, we obviously want to grow beyond 100. Um, we want to continue to build our national footprint. Uh, you know, that's why last year we opened in six new markets, you know, Washington, Nevada, Texas, North Carolina, Florida, Hawaii. Um, You know, it's all about 
bringing and dropping a flag in those markets and then growth follows. We're opening another one in Florida in the next two weeks in uh, Winter Garden. Uh, we've got another one opening in Dallas, Texas and in McAllen, Texas. Um, Hawaii is doing phenomenal and it, you know, we would like to build out our locations there. Washington has growth. We're up in Northern California and Sacramento. We're opening San Jose shortly. Yeah. Um, we've got, you know, we're looking for others in North Carolina. So it just kind of starts growing from there but it's one of those things that you um you know that that you need to be prepared for uh you know because with growth comes responsibility um and and, and extra work Dar, how do, how do, we've talked on the podcast about the locations that elon and i have experienced having a spe- specific heartbeat right um having a brand cachet that in our opinion is is a step above a lot of a lot of your competitors how do you maintain that heartbeat and that brand cachet Mm. when you're now handing over the reins to seemingly dozens of different individuals from different backgrounds um in different neighborhoods like how how is that even possible for your brand not to be tainted or affected in that way um you know you know there's you just do. I mean, you build a culture. Um, you really train hard. You talk about, I mean, as, as the founder and CEO, I just continue to repeat myself over and over about what we're in this business for. And it's actually quite interesting how often you are just repeating and being a cheerleader for your brand. Um, even, you know, when things are tough, you, you've still got to be that cheerleader and an inspiration to get people moving forward and getting over those blocks and objectives or, uh, you know, barriers. Um, and so, yeah, it's all about building that following and, and sharing that culture with 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 each individual and and respecting each other to 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 drive it so um yeah yeah that's eli and i were having a conversation on the podcast because um we were looking at like third-party franchise companies that kind of list the brands they represent and how much startup costs that are listed on a website and it'll range from start a togos from a hundred thousand dollars to start an LNL barbecue to two hundred thousand dollars to start the counter burger joint at like five hundred thousand dollars and i and i'm curious like what's the balance of when you're going to franchise obviously you know a decent amount about your operation costs but like then you also have to put a premium on your brand right like what is it what is the value of that how is that something that you calculated and entered into markets um trying to find franchisees the overall cost is always um you know you're 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 just taking data that you've used from previous build outs and you're just putting them forward Mm -hmm. so that's really what it is but that's really just to get the doors open and i think that's probably one of the hardest things for people who haven't been in business before or have been is that it's a continued investment it's like you've built the house but now you have to furnish it um you know that's something that i think a lot of people when you're looking at those kind of numbers that that's really just the build out to get you started it's important for people to realize like operating business is like having children it's like you have to and then you have to feed them and raise them and get them 
to be a you know good steward as a civilian you know i mean it's you know i mean i remember those numbers being thrown when i was way younger you'd either hear your parents or your friends of parents like hey we're gonna we have a little extra money we're gonna open up subway franchise and like you'd be like it only costs like whatever four hundred thousand dollars because it's like listed on the franchisee agreements but like the little that I do know about restaurants, I was like, it is, it is like building a house, but then you have to throw a party every single day. Yep. That gets expensive. And if people stop coming to your party because it's whack, you go out of business. So like, it's not just the cost of the four walls of the house. It's the cost of renting good streamers every day. And the balloons got to be cool. Yeah. And, and the music's got to be pumping. Yeah. You, know, you got to I mean. get a new DJ every week. Like how often do you throw a new theme for the party? Like, right. It, I think that's what's cool. You guys, you guys have your staple pizzas. You got the build your own. Do you? Is it is it hard at this point with like thirty locations and thirty five locations to like kind of just throw wild shit at the wall anymore? Like, can you? We're gonna talk about some wild shit that you are throwing at the wall with Fubi, but <laughs> but I'm curious because we have to work with some confines and guidelines there. Um, but again, because you're not in theory the only cook in the kitchen there, like you got to respect your franchisees, their their business owners as well. Yep. Like. Can you put whatever craft beer you want, like that you love, that you saw in Anaheim, like you used to do? Can you just put that on? That is always the the, the challenge, and it's really not a challenge. It's it, it's really you know trying to be mindful. I think is the best word for it. Being mindful that there's other people on board, and I think any independent business owner that opens their first own independently owned business. You know, it's a wild ride and you're able to, you know, do whatever you want. But, you know, again, like I said before, when you have other people on board, you know, it's going from uh, a fighter pilot to flying a 737. It's like, I've got 134 bodies behind me. I can't be doing loop-de-loops anymore. <laughs> Brilliant. You know, so you, you've got to stay consistent. And so, yeah, innovation is still a heavy part of the business. Um, and as we've been growing our brand, that's been something that we've been looking at. And so it's always good to find areas to continue to innovate and evolve. Um, but you really do need to be mindful to the others around you that you're looking at the costs. How is it going to market out? Um, and then, you know, how do we get everybody on board if it's something that's really going really well? Um, and so those are, those are always things that we look forward to. I mean, I want to, uh, there's so much I want to talk about. I want to talk about our pizza, but I also, I know there's some other, you want to talk about the pizza, Jeff? Or I think we should talk about the pizza because, and preface to the pizza is I think food beast has a decent understanding of how many hurdles, uh, a corporation would have to jump through in order to serve its franchisees because we work with a number of those brands where we come to them and we're like, hey, let's collaborate. Let's do this awesome thing. And then it's like someone's council gets involved and wants to talk to our council. And then there's like branding and IP. How is it being used and how is it being leveraged? And then like, hey, we don't we source this from a specific company. So we actually can't use another product because we have exclusivity with Pepsi, Coke, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then you just never collab. And, that's and, then, like, and, then, oh, so, and then it stops. And all the creative juices that the brand manager and food beast personnel are talking about completely go to shit because the the number of dominoes that it takes to line up is just like too much and so when it does happen and we're able to make something because like, we try to make amazing food items with brands all the time 
We get shut down a lot, not because the idea won't work, not because it won't sell for the brand, but because they either don't understand our contemporary context and or they can't get it approved because people don't understand Food Beast or they don't understand whatever. When we're able to work with a brand like Pizza Press that says, you want to throw all the different types of garlic we have on a pizza to create a stinky pizza and accepts it. We throw confetti here in the office. <laughs> We're just like, holy shit, someone said yes, and it's going to be good. Like, I'm so confident in the pizza that we have that it's going to be good. Dude, it was delicious. I mean, I, 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 I kind of said I was dude. scared. I was scared. I was like, man, spicy sauce. I, I won't get into all the <laughs> ingredients, but it was just... I was looking at it. I'm like, you know what? Because I was looking on paper. I'm like, no, no, this is just too much. <laughs> I'm like, this cannot be uh, something that people are going to totally dig into. And then when we did the going in, yeah. uh, that was the first time I had it. I didn't, I didn't have it before. I mean, I'm in my office most of the time, and you know, we were just looking at it, people. We're like, it's never going to work. This <laughs> food beast, food beast is uh, crazy right now. All this garlic, like, and then I had it, and it was just, it was almost a religious experience. Yeah, um, yeah, it, you yeah. know, it was it, like my my, I was, it was an out of body experience for sure. It was great. It was great. We we, I was really excited about it, and I, I think there's, uh, yeah, there it's it was so awesome. fun because sometimes you just need confines you need constructs so like when we were thinking we had the opportunity your team was like yo cool let's make a pizza like you're gonna come film at our place let's make a pizza that we keep on the menu like oh shit this is this is our time so when me and mark are thinking about this is like what's something intrinsically pizza press but what's something intrinsically food beast our first thought is like how do we make it bigger how do we throw all the meat on there i was like all right that's that's not that tight. Like, can't, and it's been done at least with like done. throwing everything like, on there. What do I there. do? A meat and lovers pizza. And like, sorry, like not to cut you off, but the biggest hurdle with build your own pizzas is yourself. You look yeah. at you look at all the <laughs> toppings, and you're like, "Fuck yeah, I want pineapple, and fuck yeah, I want ham, and fuck yeah, I want pepperoni, <laughs> and bell peppers, and garlic, and the three aiolis, and the spicy sauce." And then you get it, and you're like, "What the fuck did I do to myself?" Yep, you only have yourself to blame. You only have yourself to blame. And, and, and it's I mean, not, it's not your fault. No, it's my fault because I go in there and I just can't control my own urges, which is again why the why you guys have eight publisher pizzas. Like those are tried and true, and they're good, so you don't fuck it up yourself. I hate that we're gonna go on this side tangent, but I don't like build your own. I can't do. I can't do it. When I go when I go to Pizza Press, I'm picking what's on the wall. I might add something like a mushroom, like if it's not on the pizza that I want. But build your own is a recipe for disaster. <laughs> it like cause cause the middle ground is if you make a ton of if you're into super craft pizza, you'll just make it at home. If you don't know how to cook, you'll go out to eat. And I am putting my trust into where I'm going that they're gonna give me an ingredient mixture that is dope. So for me, I am the worst common denominator of every build your own restaurant and I fuck it all up. That's why I can't go to any of my places anymore. Except for the stinky pizza. Because Except that was, the stinky pizza was uh, solid. So well, that was not a bad call on your Stinky part. pizza went through. Uh, that wasn't just did, Eli. Dar. Yeah, that yeah, was, we, that okay, was a, cool. That was okay. a team yeah. effort. Yeah, all right, got it. All right. I mean, as, it much was, as, as much as if you didn't say anything, he would boast that it was his pizza. Like, <laughs> so that Eli, it was special. But <laughs> what we wanted to do is 
what we really pride ourselves on is like finding ways to make you remember certain menu items. That's like, that's what we love. Whether someone's already made it and we decide, yeah, we could talk about your menu item at your restaurant. It's memorable. How do we make one that one, you guys have already done all the good pizzas there. Like, you, got, you know what I mean? Like the pizzas that are good, they're already on the menu. I already picked them. We don't want to do a meat lovers. We can't go bigger. Again, you got to work with the confines. I, I hope that in the future, maybe your other franchisees can put the stinky pizza on. So Hopefully. we got we to gotta work in a way within that confine. Like, all right, dude, what do they have that we always order? Me and Mark look at each other because we're brainstorming. Mark's our video director and, and we're shooting a going in episode where we order everything on a menu at Pizza Press. So we decide garlic. All right, how do we go extra on garlic? Let's put all the garlic on there. We wanted so much garlic that it hurts. <laughs> we wanted you... We wanted all the garlic enthusiasts to not talk shit on us on Twitter and Instagram about there's not enough garlic. There's a ton of garlic in, on in it. In the same way that when people eat like taco sauce at a fast food place and they're like, yeah, this is labeled Diablo or spicy <laughs> and they like make fun of it. We were like, if we're going to make a garlic pizza, you're going to know it and you're going to feel it. Yeah. And all your dates are going to hate you. Yeah. And it's yeah. out. That Okay. Avoid the date. This pizza is not for your date unless you're like at least seven or eight dates in. But for any other reason, if you're just like looking for amazing food, which I think is, I couldn't say, but 80% of the people who walk into Pizza Press aren't on dates. Like, it's a fucking great pizza. And that's why we got so excited is because someone, even if they were hesitant to hear our crazy idea at first, they also played it out. Because so many times we just get shut down from the start. And we're like... Hey, we're not saying we're the best or most professional, but we do have a ton of data insights that's actually telling us what people like to eat. Trust us a little bit. And it hurts, baby. This pizza yeah, hurts. Yeah, it does. It's got, it, it, I mean, it was, I mean. But uh, it's that good hurt. You guys know, you guys know the good hurt when we're talking about this stuff, like where you burp a little bit of garlic out of your mouth and then it comes out of your elbow, like in all the pores up and down your arm. That's the garlic <laughs> hurt. And then I think, Daria, it might have been you or someone, you're like, yo, let's, let's throw that spicy, that spicy, that spicy marinara, pizza sauce, yeah. the marinara. Yeah, it was good. So when I took that first sauce. bite, because it was all theory, like we were ideating on this in a conference room and then we finally got to try it on the shoot first you smell the garlic it hits your nose <laughs> when you guys opened that box dude, <laughs> when you guys opened that box it was like it, because it looked it was it was like a total sleeper the, the first one that was rolled out yeah. you didn't know it just looked like a cheese, cheese pizza. pizza you you look at it and, and like it, it, there was like a few like landmines of garlic sticking <laughs> out but you couldn't see it on first glance and you have the first bite of it, but it hit you as you open that box up. It was just, whew. dude. So you get the garlic in your nose first, then you bite down. And you're like, okay, this is garlicky, and then your tongue hurts. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, what the hell? This might be too much garlic. Like, <laughs> I, I love garlic, but it, I like the hurt part is a joke, but it's the spicy marinara that cuts through. But it, it's so pungent that you don't know if it's the spicy sauce or the garlic that's punching your tongue yeah and yo guys okay so it was a great experience and uh i'm excited when it gets rolled out yeah uh, we're gonna, gonna debut awesome. the video soon um but i want everyone here to know that it is coming so you guys are getting the first sneak peek taste experience through our audio uh but if you do go remember what i said in the beginning of the podcast go to the itunes store leave the word stinky pizza 
in any review you want, leave your Instagram handle so I can contact you. The first 25 people to do that, I am going to buy your stinky pizza. So, so no excuses. There's no, no excuses. Hopefully, it's in a state that you belong to. If not, I'm going to find a way to ship it to you. I'm going to freeze dry it. We're going to figure that out. We're going to figure, figure that out. How far does it? You guys on Postmates and Grubhub and all that good stuff? Or no? <sighs> Third party, man. Third party, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think a couple of our locations are on it. Um, it's been something that I think is an interesting, actually, segue. Um, you know, how do you adapt your product to hit third party? Um, and that's something that we've always had a hard time with. But it's interesting in that business model how when it first started out, it was horrible for the business owner. Talk to me. Why? Uh, because the, the the consumer like didn't have the realization that uh, I'm having someone who I don't know pick up my food from my favorite restaurant and then bring it to me, but not realizing that what happens from the time at the restaurant to the time to their door, like no one really knows what's going on. <laughs> right. And so like, if it shows up cold, it's like, is that the restaurant's fault or is that the driver or what happened in that Exchange, delivery yeah. per, you know, per go, you know, just yeah. all that stuff. So, you know, that was a hard adaption for us, but it's also become like, very common, you know, I mean, I think with all the rain here in California that we've been experiencing, it was like, you know what? A lot of people are on this right now because it's so convenient. And I think people are starting to understand that the convenience far outweighs um, the challenges that you have. I mean, you know, even myself at home, it's, you know, I've got a two-year-old, you know, going out to a restaurant, getting some nasty looks uh, from someone across the way. Sometimes it's just like, you know what? I don't want that today. Yeah, yeah. I don't want that today. You know, most of the time I'm ready for it to throw glaring stares back. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, sometimes you're not in the mood. Man. Yeah, but sometimes it's just like, you know what? I'm just I'm just not out for a staring contest right now, you know? And so you, you just hit the you call in the airstrike yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, that's, that's what we do. And so we've been looking at how we can better serve customers through third party, how we can make it better for our uh, strategic partners being franchisees. That's, that's important, right? Because that's a hard thing. Some people are all about it. Other people are like, no, you know what they want and the percentage they take. That's like our Similar. margin. Um, but our brands got large enough that where we can actually, you know, create great partnerships and have a little bit of pull. So that's so like, that's partnership say with Grubhub or DoorDash, like you'll fix that cut or whatever. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Or? Yeah. Yeah. Just be able to negotiate. Uh -huh. Um, and that's a lot of where my role is at is, you know, with our whole entire executive team is like making sure if someone wants something that we're going in and speaking for the brand and seeing where the opportunities are at and aligning the expenses and, and what the expectations are, territories, delivery distances, all that stuff. So that number one, your product comes in proper, right? I mean, sometimes, I, you know, you're on Uber Eats or whatever, and you're like, oh my God, this place looks amazing. 
And then you Google it and you're like, dude, that thing's like 20 miles away. And yeah. you're like ordering sushi. Yeah. You're like, I don't want my sushi going 20 miles. <laughs> like, that's like, you know, yeah. that, that's the danger zone. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and some people don't set up their proximities. And I mean, that's actually something that's important. You know, if you're getting into that third party, it's important to know like how far you want your food to travel because it could pop up. 10 miles away and you're like, dude, that's not where I ever expected my food to go. Yeah. Have you, have you had better experiences with some third parties than others? Cause to me from someone who doesn't own a restaurant, one, I don't know how you choose maybe outside of availability and rate, like whatever percentage or delivery fees or whatever. Whoever has free but delivery. But like realistically for me, the consumer and as also co-founder and food beast, they seem all the same. So whether it's E24, Grubhub, DoorDash, whoever, 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 and there's literally depending on your region, there can be like eight to 10 of them. What are the good ones? Man, I mean, you know, the, the funny thing is, is it's like, it's all the same delivery drivers, right? right. They're all couriers. So I, I, I think I agree with Eli. It's about, you know, who's going to strike the best deal for that understands food business, right? I mean, it's, it, it's slim margins a lot of times. And so, you know, if they're asking for double digit percentages, you know, and they're going to say they're going to market your brand. Are they really marketing it or are you marketing it? And are you driving that business? So it's, it's hard to say. Um, but I've actually seen a, a pretty dynamic change of, you know, subscriptions, loyalty rewards. Um, you know, I, I, I think they're, they're all pretty much the same. I think Postmates got $9.99 and you can get free delivery after $15 spend, which I think the membership idea is interesting. pretty solid. Um, if I had to look across the board of like, hey, who would I want to align up? And that's if I was going to be like a third party junkie, you know, like I just am going to crush games all day and like <laughs> hit the Uber Eats or Postmates, you know, and I'm not leaving my house for 72 hours straight but i mean it's maybe once in a while for me in my own home but i respect it there's a lot of office workers who use it it's it's easy to do group ordering um how you do know, you guys feel do you guys get any sort of anxiety ordering off of these apps i know i do so like for example i've, I've been starting to try to order like more groceries and more and and my food like my favorite spots i'll order food and i just don't know how i feel about like the tipping process the delivery fees that get baked in and i this just thinking from a dude who orders pizza at his house and wants it and orders water and groceries at his house like i want the cheapest most cost effective thing and i'm lazy and i want the whole world at my fingertips for free amazon taught me that Amazon taught me I deserve yeah. that as a human. But I'm also pissed at Amazon recently because I ordered, I had to make a $35 order from Whole Foods to get my free delivery. And then mm. as I'm checking out, they throw in a $7 delivery uh, yep. tip. Yeah, I'm like, dude, I'm not an asshole. I know deep down I'm not an asshole, but I don't, you haven't gotten my shit yet. Yeah. That, that I, and I, I feel for the delivery drivers that are couriers that again, your Amazon dude might also be delivering for Grubhub, who might also be delivering for Uber Eats. So I feel for them, but I 
I feel some type of way about supporting the larger business like an Amazon and the Uber Eats where I think they should be eating that cost. Like, fuck off. Why do I have to feel that anxiety to use your app and fund you long term by using it? Like, I don't know. Am I the only one who feels this anxiety or am I an asshole because well, I don't want to Is it, it. No, is it no, tip it, anxiety only? Is that? I think it's all the fees. I mean, if you really look yeah. at it, sometimes it's like $15. Like, I was trying to order from sushi on Saturday because that's my wife wanted. And, mm-hmm. like, I was, you know, running all over the place. We just got back from Sonoma. And it was like, you know, just life was going. And, like, I popped on and there was a $20 surcharge. I, I had to back out and I went to a different app because it's like the search. Why don't I just get the Uber driver to come and pick me up and then drive to the drive through and I'll do it and it'll probably end up cheaper. I'll just, I'll just sit in the back. Like I do at 2 AM when I was younger and be like, dude, just driving through Del Taco, bro. Let's go. So that is, that's part of the anxiety is am I also perpetuating my own laziness? Cause like, cool. If you see that $20 surcharge, are you a cheapo? If you don't just pay it, or give the person a delivery fee? Or are you like, dude, I should get in my car and go. If I'm sober, good It's mind. usually timing. Like yeah. for me, I'm looking and it's like 55 minutes, dude. That's only 15 minutes down the road. I mean, I could I could just go and get it. But, you know, <laughs> like you sit there and you're like, I could literally call it in. I've actually become a bigger advocate of downloading um, my favorite spots apps. Mm. And that's kind of my starting point because it's like, realistically, if I could just order it on their app and just show up and grab it and go all the better, all the better because it's going all to the restaurant. Yeah. It's going to the restaurant. I'm going, I'm I'm going direct and and it's not even selfish. It's literally, you walk in, it's already paid for you. You you check in, they give you your food. You're out. It, It cuts out if you're in a, a busy, you know, busy time of day, it makes it a little bit easier. Um, so yeah, I I think that's a lot of and actually a lot of those apps are now developing uh courier calls where they can actually direct the delivery through the same people who use Uber and stuff like that. So it's pretty interesting. Huh. Yeah. So the the restaurants are now gonna have the ability to tap into that same network that Uber, Postmates and things like and and, and the other uh providers. Uh, offer so it's just getting in it's like you got drivers moving around call them in let them bid it and uh, they'll drop it off for you so uh, little food hack right download the app and uh, call it in I I think it's funny because I live in an apartment complex where you need a fob or a or a Uh, code to get in and so you can leave instructions on the app and if you're lucky to get a competent driver, they can technically show up to your door. But what I see constantly at my complex is like you ordered food through the app, but then you still had to like walk downstairs so you don't have to deal with the bullshit of them not knowing where to park, not knowing where your apartment is and getting lost. And so it's really funny to me is like, I'll think about using delivery apps and then like, but the whole reason I want to use a delivery app is so I can sit in my boxers in my bed. Yeah. Like as soon as I'm putting pants on to meet the person downstairs, you got to your do- car. Yeah, call hey. them to direct them into parking to, for them to hand me my food outside. It's like, I should have just drove. <laughs> right. I have and, pants and you could have gra- grabbed a beer there. You could have grabbed a beer <laughs> wherever you're at. You're like, dude, I could have just grabbed a beer. It would have been fine. Like this guy isn't bringing you beer. I mean, you know, and, and the best is when you're watching the app because you're starving 
and you, you're just like, where's my food? And then you look on the app and the car's literally doing a break dance. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like spinning. You're like, where is this guy? You're like, where is he? And it's just like it spinning. It looks like they're doing donuts in a right? parking lot. Like, you're like, what on? is this? And and you're just like, this is this is a mess. Because, like I, I used to live in a, in a condo as well. And it's like they're like driving in the in the little parking structure and so they're like doing this break dance on the app you're like this is amazing it's like a big windmill and the car is just spinning and it is definitely not all gloom i mean this weekend i was in san diego and i was at a hotel and we were stuck in a little bit of traffic after going out we were going out doing some fun stuff and i was like all right we got about like 25 minutes before we get to the to the hotel and traffic kind of sucks right now ordered something shows up in the lobby like the perfect drop-off situation where the the postmates driver showing up literally throwing me the food you eli yep eli boom grab it go in so like there's perfect moments where it's nice and like i just tip based on like yo thank you for that moment like thank you for throwing that food perfectly to me i think that was on you though what you mean like you were the one who timed it perfectly I mean, you quarterback the whole thing. I mean, you know, just to be clear about yeah, it, that's true. like, that's I mean, true. you were the one who called the cadence on that and you were like, hey, 25 minutes, you knew. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, Tom it Brady was of, you, Tom Brady. That was like a perfect handoff, handoff. Like right. it could have been a commercial. That's like, damn, Postmates if they us. had a commercial that would have been as golden as like the Hertz commercial with. OJ Simpson of like the proper call in running through and just grabbing, grabbing the box of food and going up to your hotel room. I mean, it's similar, but different. <laughs> food beast exclusive. We've never mentioned OJ Simpson ever on any, on any platform, no matter what. So it happened here on this podcast. Wait, controversial. I mean, we were talking about the Hertz commercial. No, 1976. No, I know, I know, no, no, I'm just saying, look, it's just a random I'm fact. Glad, I'm glad we got think, to talk about think, OJ. I don't but think. if you have time, like literally YouTube that, it's a classic, <laughs> iconic commercial of him trying to get to his plane on time. And, you know, this is exactly where you're at. It's just, it's where it's at. <laughs> the contemporary version. Yeah, you were you were hungry, famished probably. Yeah. And you just wanted food, but yeah. you knew like... 25 minutes this guy's gonna be here well i'm such an obnoxious multitasker where i like have to make use of every spare second otherwise i feel like i'm not living life to its full potential <laughs> realistically i could have gone dropped my bags in the room had a nice little walk around san diego picked up some food but i was like what this traffic is a waste of time so in 25 minutes i can have exactly what i want to eat delivered to go real quick back to the anxiety that I feel around ordering food, because it goes back to the food service and some of the stuff that you guys feel on the restaurant side, is I've heard the horror stories of the cuts that these uh, apps take to get you the food, right? So like now my anxiety as a customer is like, am I fucking my favorite restaurant by one, not leaving a tip, two, by ordering the food? Because I hear like, okay, cool, my sales went up. I'm a restaurant owner, my sales went up because I'm on Grubhub, Uber Eats, whatever. But then I hear the horror stories of like, the sales went up, but I lost money on every freaking order. Yep. So like, so here I am sitting in my underwear at home, making my favorite <laughs> restaurant go out of business. Right. Like, so now there's that anxiety. So now I'm tipping, but I'm tipping a driver that doesn't belong to the restaurant. I'm now making up the margin that Uber and Amazon won't pay their own employees. Like, that's where the anxiety comes from. Yep. Like, 
Am I an asshole? Is the restaurant not figuring their shit out? Like, what the fuck is going on? I mean, for for me, as it relates to to tipping drivers, like, I just think about when we ordered pizza as a family and pizza was literally the only thing that you could get delivered seemingly for decades to come to your door. Uh, Chinese food, too. And Chinese food. I mean, like, in metropolitan areas, but, like, in here, that wasn't a thing, Mm. um, or at least not for me. Um, I'll show you some spots. <laughs> They've been doing it, but it, it was one of those things where it was just like it felt like customary to tip that driver because right. of pizza delivery, and so I, I treat the same thing for you know if they're not if they're from Grubhub, no matter who they are, like treat them with a little respect. But I also don't think it should be seven dollars on a thir- thirty five dollars. You know, I don't know if it needs to be that, and because there isn't really a set percentage, there isn't the the cultural fifteen to twenty percent for drivers specifically that we do know for waiters. I mean, on the real though, on the business side, it is uh, challenging if you're trying to build your business and you know you're a new restaurant, you're opening up, and you're trying to build your local sales, uh, but then you've got this technology distraction of this pinging iPad where it's like, I've got to get this because the last thing you need is the Uber delivery dude leaving you a bad Yelp review. Mm. Happens all the time, by the oh, way. The Uber shit. driver will leave yeah, a Yelp dude, review? They'll leave a Yelp review. It's crazy. And you know, it's just like, you're like, dude, like we're trying to take care of guests. I get you're important. Like I wish that your thing had a geo thing, you know, a geo fence <laughs> that when you got five minutes away, I can make that because the business owner sitting there like, dude, I need to fire this thing at the right time to give him the best product so he can get out the door. But sometimes these that. guys just show up and they're like, dude, where's the food at? I need to get going. I'm going to lose my star rating. And it's like, what do you talk? I didn't get any orders. And it can be a little bit of a challenge or that system. And so there's other systems that integrate, but I do look at businesses that you know if they've got like square or you know we use toast and they have an integration so that the third party can go in there and it prints up on the printer so Uh, you don't have the spaceship in your spaceship ipad like in a random corner the console (laughs) and it's not one you know if you go into those restaurants they've got like Like three or of them and this consolidates it that it just goes straight in the system and it just comes out as if someone ordered it on an app and it Uh just prints out. And so it makes it a lot easier for our business, but you know, to feel for some of the smaller businesses who are like, you know, I could really build my revenue. Um, you know, because that that's, I mean, revenue solves some problems, right. But it doesn't solve all of them. Um, you know, uh, you know, the, the amount of percent that some of these third parties take is pretty significant. I mean, 35%, 33%. 35%, 33%. Shut up. Yeah. In the 30s? Am, am I exposing something right now? Like, I, I, it's I didn't in know. the 30s. 30% of the gross revenue. Gross. Guys, That's here's, gross. okay, I, I have to go out on a limb, and I don't know the data, so sue me later. Please, <laughs> actually, please don't sue me. Please don't. But that sounds so fucked up. Here's, so if you're ordering something, off any of these apps, they're taking 30% from the restaurant. These guys wrote lines of code that 
that there's no cost to them after the line of code is written and the general maintenance that some dude in the Bay Area has to fucking do. Yeah. Like, sorry that we took you away from your free lunch every day and your own Uber drive home. <laughs> so 30% out of the restaurant's mouth. On top of that, Uber Eats, Postmates, DoorDash has the fucking audacity to ask Eli A. Ruth, a customer, to pay the difference to your underpaid delivery driver. I'm sorry. You could go fuck yourself. <laughs> well, we am said, I the only one? Yeah, well, you, uh, we sit on decently opposite sides of the spectrum only because I've had pretty interesting conversations with people at Uber. Okay. And how much money they're losing every day. Oh, no. They, they just and, reported $1.8 billion in their first quarter of losses. And so it's one of those things where should I feel bad though? No, I, I don't. I'm not saying you should feel bad. I'm just saying you're in a disruptive. A, you're I, in a. Dis, you're I trying to you, disrupt. I hear so. you. They're trying to disrupt, and they're paying. They're but they are paying a premium for it. As much as they're taking thirty percent from restaurants, I don't. There's that's not a right or wrong question. There is no right or wrong. If a restaurant is worth it to them, it's right. If it's not, then don't do it. It's mm-hmm. wrong. But at, Fair. at face value, they're trying to change consumer habits, which is just an intensive, costly thing. Mm-hmm. If Uber Eats, specifically the division, reported like two billions in earnings. That, that was and, the only avenue that grew for them, actually, in that report. They actually had growth in their delivery. So it was, I think, 40% up on delivery. Um, and they, they did. But I think a lot of their losses was actually in the development of like their autom- uh, their driving car, uh, driverless car, and stuff like that. So a lot of it's in research and development, not actually on a revenue speak. No. So they lost a bunch of money in the development of trying to remove and eradicate people from the process that built their business to start. I mean, yeah, we. Could, I don't feel we, bad we, in the we, least. We could, bit. we could have a separate conversation about like <laughs> this. Might be another. This is another. Yeah. This, this may is like be a another. totally another thing. Yeah. Like it's a, it's actually a really good podcast conversation. But I'm just saying that there, there there's eight all the companies we've mentioned. They're all competing with each other. Yep. They're all startup based. They're all losing their teeth and have no value and profitability. Their value is users, and their value is like growing revenue, and that's it. I, I would love to have a billion dollar startup. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be clear, I that mean, loses that loses money. Yeah, <laughs> and still get paid great as a CEO. Like, um, spe- speaking of, uh, the Uber CEO is named Dara as well. So it's, oh. we, I tried to link in and he didn't accept it. I, so. I, w- I would think like, that just the accepting, finding another Dara the accepting would, on LinkedIn would be higher for people with the same name. For sure. Like, especially being so unique, right? It's like, dude, you're Dara. <laughs> I'm Dara. You're a CEO. I'm a CEO. We should build. We like it should be like its own little group on LinkedIn, like the Dara group, and like all Dara's come together. Um, but anyways, it was <laughs> <laughs> like Jeff and I literally can't relate. <laughs> Jeff, I'm Eli. Yeah, yeah, that's cool, cool group. <laughs> yeah, not accepted, Jeff. Not accepted. I know. Jeff can't even hit up Bezos because like the names are spelled <laughs> in the same, same. way. <laughs> like we can't, we can't relate, man. Um, it would be cool to have friends as Jeff. On yeah. 
Well, we now know the subject of a future podcast. I apologize to whatever at Uber Eats that I might have offended for your it's really still high a great salary. Service. Yeah, it's, it's still a really, great service. Again, I mean, the convenience, I use them on a weekend. You know, all good stuff. 30, Way more positive th- th- than negative. But 30%. Wow. That's, that's just eye-opening, I think. For anyone who hasn't worked on the restaurant side of the business, that's, I mean, just in gross margin perspective in business, like 30%. Like, 30 percent's a lot it is and i mean you know they, they try to spin it in a great way and, and and there's some there's some credibility to the way they spin it it's like it's a customer that you wouldn't have had before but when that becomes a larger percentage of your business it, it, it can be devastating if your whole entire fan base builds on that that can spell trouble uh for a restaurant for sure yeah well shit Glad we ended on such a positive note. Oh, we done? <laughs> no, 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 just kidding. Hey guys, Probably. go. Hey guys, go get go get the Foodies Pizza in Anaheim at the Pizza Press starting in March. Yep. And leave that review, Stinky Pizza, on iTunes, on the podcast. Thank you guys for listening, Darth. Thank you for being here. No problem. Do you have a personal Instagram, or do you just drive people to the Pizza Press Instagram? Uh, you know, I think it's at Dara Malecki. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, it should be like at the, the the Prince of Persia, like you started uh, off. I should drop that. That should be my new handle. Um, but no, it's just at Dara Malecki. But better yet, at the Pizza Press. Also, uh, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, we just launched our app, the Pizza Press app. It's on mm. Google Play and uh, the Apple Store. So uh, nice. check it out. Order online. Skip the line. It's pretty easy. I like that. All right, guys. Thank you again for listening. Appreciate you every week. Have a great day. That's Eli. I'm Jeff. Thanks, Dara. Thanks, guys. Good pod.